0: I may change my mind. Honey, will you turn that air down a little bit? Seems really warm in here. Please. Um. Well, I have a story for you tonight. Did did anybody not guess that? (laughs) You like stories? Oh, I didn't know whether you like them or not, but Okay. 1966. Where were you? Some of us were out of high school. Some were married. Some were out of college. Some had children. I know one among us that was in the second grade. I'm not going to mention, you know, preschool, but. uh, (laughs) 1966 was the year that Time magazine published its controversial issue, Is God Dead? It was also America's darkest hour. It'd be 35 years before 9 11, but America was already engaged in its most controversial war, a war that claimed 58,000 American lives and 350,000 wounded. And there are those today who want to engage America in Eastern Europe. And I have to ask, for what? In 1966 alone, there were 6,000 casualties. There were 30,000 wounded body bags arrived from Southeast Asia almost daily. Who were these? Some were family members. Some were church members. Some were friends. And some were classmates. There were eight devout Christians that I've singled out that I want to share their story with you tonight. Keeping in mind that there were thousands of devout Christians who went and fought for our country. But I've singled out these eight to share what I have learned from their story. I believe they deserve recognition as Medal of Honor recipients. Of course, they didn't. But they were heroes, and they were some of America's most courageous and deserving survivors. Their names are very likely engraved on... God's Wall of Hall of Fame. And I want to share their story with you tonight. By the time we get to the end, you'll know why I'm sharing this story. So we begin tonight with an air war over North Vietnam. It's 1966. And this was Captain Jeff Powell's 42nd career mission. He was flying about 30 miles southeast of Hanoi. He's in a F-105 Thunder Chief. A supersonic aircraft, he's carrying almost half of its weight in munitions. His target was a bridge, a North Vietnamese supply line between the Ho Chi Minh Trail and the Haiphong Harbor. Powell lets down through a 10,000-foot ceiling cloud. He sights the objective. He does a roll-in, and he releases his stores. Half of the span of the bridge disintegrated. But when he tried to pull up out of the maneuver, well, the controls would not respond. And he's thinking, this isn't possible. He said, I didn't hear anything. And the sky around him began to turn a bright white as the fuel tank under the left wing exploded. And he was forced to eject before he could radio anyone. A month later, Jeff Powell is stripped of his survival gear, he's blindfolded, he's trussed with wire, and Jeff Powell's being marched through the jungles and the rural villages of North Vietnam by at night by his captors, traveling under the cover of darkness to avoid being spotted by American bombers or rescue planes. At one point, nauseous and feverish, he was hung from a banana tree in a village as the star attraction in a circus of mockery. He was stoned, he was urinated on by the villagers. Later propaganda movies and photographs were taken of him. You may recall seeing him being marched under the gun-toting guard of a little girl dressed in pajamas. The Gulf of Tonkin, one month later. Captain Terry Jones had survived the destruction of his F-4 Phantom II by a surface-to-air missile. He ejected only after all of the emergency procedures to regain control of his plane. As he floated downward, he knew that his only injury was a cut on his arm. But he was terrified. Terrified because beneath him he could see excited villagers gathering together in a rice paddy, militiamen. There they were brandishing, machetes, weapons, and guns. As Jones looked upward at his parachute and the sky, he wondered, well, did the flight leader see me go down? Below him, the shouts grew louder and louder. Six weeks later, Terry Jones was in a bamboo cage in the jungle. He's lying on his stomach with his feet in wooden stocks. His arms are tied behind him with wet ropes. Following this torturous confinement, he was taken to a temple near a rice paddy where he was turned over to a North Vietnamese officer who had with him another American pilot with native garb. The officer told the two prisoners that they would be taken to Hanoi, and if they tried to communicate with each other, well, both of them would be executed. Hanoi, the same year, 1966. Thus, Jeff uh, Jeff Powell and Terry Jones and many others like them, they came together at a place that the American airmen called the Hanoi Hilton. It was a triangular building the size of a city block surrounded by a dry moat. It had 20-foot-high walls, studded with sharp hunks of glass, and topped with electrified barbed wire. The prison had been built built by the French during their occupation of Vietnam, and there was still a guillotine in the basement. Inside from the cell block called Heartbreak, a prisoner in solitary confinement could be heard crying, Oh God, oh God, help me, oh God, please help me. Because he would not give his captors information beyond his name, his rank, his serial number, and his date of birth, He had been bent over backwards, he had been tied, so that his spine threatened to snap like a dry branch at any moment. Jeff and Terry had by now lost 40 pounds, they were down to about 110. They both went through heartbreak, everybody did. They were classified and then they were moved to another area of the Hilton. Some prisoners were sent to some of the outlying camps. The frequency and the severity of the torture depended upon the uh, prisoner's rank and the quality of information that he could give to the enemy. From the period of 1966 to 1970, Major James Kassler, he arrived at the Helton. He's got a broken thigh bone. It's sticking in his groin. He was beaten from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., each hour for days on end. His head was smashed. His buttocks was ripped a hamburger by fan belts. His mouth was so, so severely bruised that he could not open it, and one of his eardrums was ruptured. But Kessler found that if he recited the Lord's Prayer, concentrating intently upon it, he was able to block out the pain for a period of time. Norman McDaniel knew it was 5.30 a.m. because the morning gong had sounded. The camp's PA system was blaring the voice of Vietnam, a broadcast nicknamed Hanoi Hannah by the Americans. McDaniel folds up his mosquito netting. He blots out the propaganda with a verse that he had remembered from his youth. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Captain James Ray shot down on Mother's Day, 1966. He had now been in solitary confinement for two years. Each day's menu for him consisted of two servings of pumpkin soup and a a lump of pig fat. He shared his cell with ants, mosquitoes, and flies. It would have been easy to lose one's faith, but sometimes mysteriously, he felt he was not alone. His family and the people in his church back home in Texas, they were praying for him. From inside the cell, at heartbreak, Howard Rutledge could hear the guard walking through the corridor and methodically unlocking the thick, teak doors of the cells. Rutledge counted the three, and then it was his turn. The key turned, uh, unlocked the door and it swung open. Rutledge knelt uh, knelt down as if the genuflect in front of his captor. He grasped the, uh, the day's two bowls of rations that were placed before him on a contaminated cement floor in front of him. After receiving the food, he stood at attention at the guard, knowing that he would be punished if he did not. When the door closed, a waft of air bearing the odor of excrement "'took away what appetite he may have had. "'He sat on the cement slab while he, well, "'he kept one hand over his sewer greens "'and his other hand to fight off the cockroaches. "'And when he chewed on the hard bread, "'he realized that there were bits of sand "'embedded in the dough. "'It crunched in his teeth. "'The guard came to the door, "'and the first of Rutledge's two daily meals was finished. "'A gong sounded,' Signaling, it is now time to lie down for two hours. Periodically, a guard pacing the corridor would open up the Judas hole in the cell door just to make sure that he was prone. He snoozed until another gong sounded, the one that forbade him to lie down. And now it was time to either sit or stand for seven hours. Rutledge heard a soft whistle from the cell across from his. It was Larry Jenkins. He's whistling. Mary had a little lamb. That was the signal he could communicate. Rutledge placed his feet, his bare feet, on the cement slabs on either side of his cell, and he boosted himself up to the metal-barred windows above the door. Howard, Jenkins whispered. I'm here, whispered Rutledge. I remember another story, Jenkins whispered quickly. What is it? I remember the story of Ruth and Naomi, how Naomi had lost everything that she had. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She lost her land. Do you remember the story? Oh, I just remember some of it, he said. Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law. Ruth was faithful to Naomi. She stayed with her. They went to a foreign land. What happened, Rutledge asked. Oh, can't remember that. A prisoner in the neighboring cell coughed. Well, that was signaling, signal to them that a guard was near, and Rutledge had to climb down from his perch. He paced the cell, and uh, thinking of Jenkins' story, he tried to remember the name of the person who had helped Naomi and Ruth. Three hours later, he's still going over the same story in his mind. He had learned it in Sunday school when he was about ten. He meditated on the story throughout the second and final meal of the day. Sunday dinner for him, seaweed soup, sow belly fat. Hanoi Hannah crackled to life on the loudspeaker. It was 8.30 p.m. It's time for the bedtime propaganda story. It lasts about a half an hour. And when it was over, Rutledge climbed up to the opening again, and he whispered, Hey, Jenkins, a pause, what? I just remember who helped Ruth and Naomi. It was Boaz. Gradually, communication between the prisoners improved. They made up a code. It was based upon the Morse code. And they learned to communicate that way with their ears to the walls, their bodies wrapped in blankets if they had them to keep the noise level down. The alphabet was translated into a five-by-five five dot matrix in which each letter was represented by the placement of vertical and horizontal wall taps. And once a prisoner knew the code, he was online. By way of this network, the men recalled and taught each other scripture. They learned the names. They learned the serial numbers of every prisoner in the cell block. They learned who had been transferred, who was being tortured. And in this way, they shared each other's pain. On Sunday morning, when the guard gave them a chance, the senior officers in each cell block thumped on the wall five times. This alerted the prisoners in solitary confinement and other cellmates that it was time to worship. The signal was church call Each man recited to himself privately the Lord's Prayer, maybe the 23rd Psalm or the 100th Psalm. And then they had silent hymns and private prayers. A new prisoner was stuck in solitary confinement at the end of the building. Each morning he ran to keep in place, shaking the entire structure. After the new man was taught the tap code, he began running in this odd jerky way seven men at the other end of the cell block deciphered the jogger's message. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. I will lift up my eyes. After an unsuccessful American rescue attempt on November the 11th, 1970, the North Vietnamese decided for security reasons to move all of the airmen in the outlying camps back to the Hanoi Hilton, with other prisoners. To make room for the influx, new cells were partitioned off. Men were moved out of solitary into these large open bay-type cells that could accommodate 40, 50, even 60 prisoners. The new cell block was called Camp Unity. And unlike the cells in Heartbreak, the cells in Camp Unity had huge high barred windows that let in rivers of daylight. Conditions improved somewhat. Occasionally, the prisoners were let out for reasons other than interrogation or torture. Sometimes they got to do chores. Anything was a relief from the boredom. They emptied the two-gallon toilet bucket. They washed dishes. They cleaned the courtyard. And if they bathed or washed their clothes, well, they usually had to use sewage. For years, these prisoners had asked for a Bible. It was not until December 1970 did they even see one. Then the English-speaking interrogator brought one into cell four, and the men gathered round. Jeff Powell read the Christmas story aloud, and then several of the Psalms, the Sermon on the Mount. The men were not sure how long they would have the Bible, or really would they ever see it again. So James Ray, the one shot down on Mother's Day in 1966, who had spent two years in solitary confinement, he turns to 1 Corinthians 13 and he memorized the chapter. The Bible was in the cell for two hours. On the condition that the prisoners follow an approved format, the North Vietnamese allowed as many as 20 men at a time to gather for formal church services. And this had to take place out in the courtyard, behind bamboo screens, which obstructed the view of the other cells. And there they worshipped, while the English-speaking interrogator monitored everything that was said and everything that was done. On more than one occasion, the prisoners, well, they would digress from the format. They would begin to recite scripture that had not been previously approved by the interrogator. And when this happened, the interrogator pushed himself into the circle, shaking his head furiously, and thrust the men back into their cells. One Sunday morning, James Ray called the men to order by leading them in singing the doxology. He prayed, We thank you, Lord, for your protection, for your mercy, for bringing us together. Eight of the men then assembled in front of the group, And they sang, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. The prisoners' obvious determination to worship caused repeated confrontations with their captors. For example, a guard would hear the men singing hymns in their cell. And he would run and get the English-speaking interrogator who would order, no no political meetings. No, 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 no. They'd argue. It isn't political. No, there's too many of you. You can't hold a political meeting. Join us. Find out. This isn't a political meeting. We will throw all of you in solitary confinement if you continue. Their argument was, join us and see. Eventually, despite... Solitary confinement, threats of torture and harassment, the captives wore down their captors and more freedom was given to those in Camp Unity. In early 1971, the North Vietnamese permitted three prisoners to copy the Bible for one hour a week. James Ray was one of the three. He sat at a wooden table and he began copying the Sermon on the Mount. The guards standing by, closely watching, he repeatedly had to place his elbow on the very verse that Ray was trying to copy. So sometimes he would do that for up to 15 minutes at a time. And then he would try to distract Ray with the most inane questions. During the five weeks that the program lasted, James Ray managed to copy much more than the Sermon on the Mount. Each day, he brought the precious words copied back to the cell, and Ray's cellmates would recopy the words in a crude fashion, a crude fashion that they had devised, writing on toilet paper rations with brick dust ink and a quill pen. They recopied the verses because each week, Ray had to turn in the previous week's copies before he could transcribe more. The verses then were immediately memorized by different prisoners. Moving forward to the spring of 71, it marked the sixth year of torturous confinement. Easter Sunday, 1971. Captain Tom Curtis woke up early and he studied the notes and the verses that he and James Ray had assembled the previous evening. Curtis looked at the uh, roomful of sleeping prisoners around him. 28 men. All of them pilots. How had they managed to survive in this place? The morning gong sounded just as sunlight struck the western wall. And Several of the men limped or stretched painfully while getting up. Old wounds for these top guns had not healed. At about 10 o'clock, Curtis stood in front of the drab eastern wall, and he called the service to order. The men gathered in a semicircle before him. It was Easter Sunday, 1971. A quartet sang the old rugged cross, And then everyone joined in in amazing grace. And Curtis recited the version of the Passion of Christ that he and the men had patched together from somewhat faulty memories. And when they had bound him, when they had led him away, delivered him to Pontius Pilate, they stripped him. And they put the crown of thorns upon his head. And they spit on him. And they hit him. And Curtis thought of the experiences that they had all shared. Being bound, chained, spit upon, whipped, lashed to trees, stoned, urinated on. And then someone handed Curtis several pieces of bread that had been saved from their previous day's rations. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it, and he gave it to the disciples saying, Take ye, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in memory of me. The bread was passed and quietly eaten. And then Curtis repeated the verse about the cup. This is my blood shed for you. These men knew about blood, Curtis thought, their own blood. Flowing From open wounds, from lacerations, from ruptured eardrums, from torn out fingernails, blood that seeped through every makeshift bandage. And now they thought about Christ's blood shed for them. The cup of carefully saved seaweed soup was passed, and someone quietly hummed, Amazing Grace. As Curtis brought the cup to his lips, he began to weep. He wondered, did they have any right to identify their sufferings with the sufferings of Christ? But then, wasn't their presence in this place alive against all odds? A sign of Christ's continuing presence with them? He remembered that Christ had said that he would build his church. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. They were part of that church, a part of the broken body of Christ in every way. Yes, Christ had prevailed, for here they were, worshiping Him in the jungles of a world gone mad, relying on Him. They had nothing less than the privilege of showing the Lord's death, His burial, His resurrection, His presence, the church, in what was otherwise a living hell faithful christian living lived out by eight devout american pilots captain jeff powell captain terry jones major james castler captain norman mcdaniel captain james ray captain howard rutledge captain larry jenkins captain tom jenkins and they were joined by some 20 others, whose testimony declared, I bear branded in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians six seventeen, For me to live is Christ. Philippians 1, 21. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? His ways are past tracing out But of him, because of him, and through him are all things to him be the glory forever. Romans 11.33-36 And unto me who is the least of all of the saints is this grace given, that I should preach, in their case, share the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3 and 8 Brave men who defended our country with honor, in light of daily persecution. And yet, there were living examples who define what it means to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Amidst the senseless war that claimed 58,000 American lives and wounded 350,000. Let's pray. Father, so moved by your grace, fellow servants that are persecuted, thank you for their bravery and their courage to defend our country, and in so many cases to be ignored by the public. Lord, I know that I was created to worship you. To worship you above all else. You want me to trust you. Enough to worship you in all things. You want our worship amidst hardships. Not just in the good times. And you desire my worship. No matter what is happening around me. You're always worthy to be praised. And so regardless of what is going on around me. I will worship you for you are greater than anything that I face. I worship you as my Creator, my Heavenly Father, the Almighty, the all-powerful God for whom nothing is impossible. You are my Redeemer, Restorer, Provider, and Protector, and all of your ways are good. I praise you with my whole heart, and I thank you For your unfailing love for me. I will not allow anything to keep me from worshiping you. Not circumstances. Not even someone else's bad behavior. I know that when I worship you. I'm doing your perfect will. And it is pleasing in your sight. O God my rock and my redeemer. In the name of Jesus. Amen.